0: Hello, and welcome to the Keep Singing Podcast, the Rambling Dead edition. I'm your host, Sunny, also known as Dynamic Symmetry, on Tumblr and Twitter and various other places. And if you're just joining us, well, first of all, you probably should listen to this in order. It's not necessary, I guess, but I would say it's advisable. If you're just joining us, though, uh, this is going to be an episode-by-episode rewatch of all of The Walking Dead up until... I don't know. I guess it'll just depend on... uh, uh, what my schedule allows for and how far we get. But this episode is going to be Season 1, Episode 2, Guts. Uh, before we get into that, just a reminder, if you're enjoying this series, if you enjoy Keep Singing in general, if you enjoy the other kinds of stuff I do, uh, whether it's professional or fandom related, you can help me continue to keep doing that by going to Patreon.com slash Dynamic Symmetry. You can give me a couple bucks a month. You get things like flash fiction, longer fiction, audio goodies, stuff from my other podcast called Gone, uh, which is an audio drama horror thing. By the way, season two of that is gonna be starting up probably later this summer. So if you enjoy audio drama, I would stay tuned for news about that. But this is not that. This is my fandom podcast. So, yeah, uh, if you enjoy what I'm doing, basically, you can help support me in doing that. You can help me justify the amount of time I put into this. It's just me. I have no team. I do this all by myself. It takes a certain amount of work. Also takes out-of-pocket money. Uh, Hugely appreciated, and thank you so, so much to the people who have been supporting me. I can't tell you how much I appreciate it. Okay, Uh, yeah, without further ado, let's get into it. I have tea. Uh, it's just back to regular English breakfast fortified with vitamins. Uh, so yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm raring to go. So, the beginning of this episode, um... Uh, I'm, I'm gonna have a lot of stuff to say about Shane as we go through this. I'm just... my feelings about Shane... I mean, I mentioned the last episode that I, I like him, but I like him as a character. I do not like him as a person. I mean, to be perfectly blunt, uh, he makes me cringe the fuck out. And this this is the uh, first time I think i really experienced some serious cringe. There's a little bit at the beginning of the premiere where he's talking shit with Rick and it's pretty gross. But this is just... Uh, I mean, okay, I, I, should, I should say, like, I was watching, you know... It, As you remember, the episode, the cold open, is Lori's walking around in the woods and Shane kind of jumps her and, you know, and and then it's like, surprise, I, you know, made you feel frightened and kind of threatened and now we're gonna have sex and they do uh, in a couple different positions. And, but, you know, she's like, she's feeling conflicted because she's remembering Rick and oh no, and it's, you know, all angsty. And as I was watching it, I was thinking this would be a hundred million times hotter if it was actually Rick. You know, like I, I, I was watching it and just finding myself swapping out the characters and going, I wish this was Rick because would, I would just be enjoying this on so many levels. And instead, I'm just like, uh-huh. I mean, I, OK, I, I really like John Bernthal. He's fucking great. And I think that it is a testament to his acting skills that I dislike Shane so much as a person. I, I feel like I'm supposed to. This show, as I mentioned last time, has problems with women and they are not insignificant. And I'm always uncertain when I'm seeing stuff like Shane. You know, I'm uncertain as to whether the show understands the problems and is aware of them and is kind of wants me to feel the way I'm feeling. Or whether I'm actually supposed to be liking Shane to to some degree. I, I don't know. I really don't know. I think that that Shane has done a lot better in season two. Uh, again, I'm getting kind of ahead of myself, but we'll we'll get to that. But yeah, I, I just I dislike him so intensely here, and his relationship with Laurie is like, uh, I mean, I mean, I mean, especially jumping way ahead toward the toward the end of the episode when Shane is saying, you know, well, it sucks that you know the group is trapped on top of a roof, but we're not going in there to get them, and. On the one hand, I understand the pragmatism of that decision. But on the other hand, it's like, you're a fucking dick. You're making this decision way too easily. Like, you're just way too cold about this. And it's, it's, you know, these are people you've been depending on and who, you know, yeah, it's, it's important not to risk the group uselessly, but also you kind of owe these people. Like, these people are part of your crew. And it's, uh, I just, I fucking hate them. You know I hate him, and I hate his relationship with Lori, and obviously that's going to get even grosser right up to the end of the first season, which we will, which we will talk about. But, but yeah, the the cold open makes me have a lot of feelings, and uh, they're super conflicted, and I just uh, this this. After I posted the the, the previous episode, a um, bunch of other people kind of, you know, talked to me on Tumblr about it a little bit. And a couple people said, you know, yeah, like, I almost stopped watching the show in the first season because it was making me so uncomfortable with the gender issues. And yes, I mean, as I'm watching, I, I don't know if it's because I'm just, you know, I, I watched this years ago. I watched this, this, this. I, watched, I started watching the show for the first time years ago. And season one is not a season that I tend to go back and rewatch very much. I tend to usually start with, it's kind of like with me and Buffy. Like I never even watched the first season of Buffy I, under advice from people I trusted. They were like, just, you know, read the synopsis and then start with season two. And that's kind of what I do with The Walking Dead. I did watch the first season initially, but when I rewatch, I actually tend to just start with season two. Uh, if you're reading my canon rewrite, The Good Stars, you know that I basically rewrote all of season one like, completely differently. Some of that was necessary, but also it was just like, I don't really want to go deep into season one because I just don't want to. And I'm, I'm, I'm kind of being brought face to face with some of why. And it's, yeah, this this is just uncomfortable. And there's a lot that I can't even really pin down regarding why it's so uncomfortable. But this is, I'm not comfortable with how this story is being told. There are things about it that I'm enjoying, but I, I think that my like there there's a a, exhibit a of my feelings is captured in the cold open of this episode where i'm just cringing and i I cannot even entirely explain to you why i'm cringing but i'm just cringing a lot it's not good all right um t and and i'll i'll continue so yeah, um, th- thankfully, thankfully, we don't get a whole lot of Shane in this episode. And it's, it's mostly just kind of meeting the rest of the group who's not actually back at the camp and getting to know Glenn some more and, and, and meeting Merle. And all of that's delightful. Uh, this, this is also just a fun episode and a lot of stuff happens and it's paced really well. And there's, there are a few things in it that are frustrating. Mostly it's just a good time. Running around downtown Atlanta is, is fun to watch. Again, it's, it's especially refreshing after having been through so much of this show where it's just, you know, rocks and trees and rocks and trees and rocks and trees and water. And uh, it's, 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 it's fun, you know, running around buildings and, you know, chasing things down alleys. And, and the part where Glenn is driving the car out of Atlanta is just so fucking great. He's so fun. Uh, that's, that's one of the things about this episode that's so great is just, you know, getting really getting to know Glenn. But, so so all of that stuff is is well-paced and it's exciting. And I think that these characters are introduced very effectively, very quickly. You, you don't have a whole lot of time to, you know, get to know these people on kind of a, a, an individual person-by-person level. You don't get a chance to really, you know, deep know what their deal is. You have to do some very clear but very rapid fire characterization in in the space of 40 minutes and this episode does that really well um you know you get a sense of who glenn is right away you get a sense that he's you know quick and he's smart and he's used to being there on his own which tells you something right away about how the rest of the group functions they're all there for something but mostly it's most of the time it's just been glenn which has some interesting implications about the dynamic of the entire group. Um, So you get the sense that Glenn is really experienced to this and Glenn really knows what he's doing. You don't get that sense with the rest of them. Uh, You get a real sense of kind of varying competence, especially, and this is where we get back to some gender problems, especially with Andrea. I don't remember exactly how Andrea is introduced in the comics. I don't think that it is like this. I think that it is done differently. Because I recall watching the, the show for the first time and thinking, huh, that's not exactly how I expected these characters to show up. So, uh, again, I'm not going to go back and do a reread of the comics, too, but I think that this is done differently than, than in the comics. But I, you know, for all of Kirkman's gender issues, and, and those will come up again later, I, I don't remember Andrea being introduced in a way that calls into question her competence and her ability to work well under pressure. And that's really questioned here. Uh, I I noticed that the episode is actually written by Frank Darabont, which I just think I should flag because I, one of the things that I mentioned in the last episode is that I think that some of these gender issues actually are kind of deep-seated Frank Darabont issues for a variety of different reasons. But, you know, Andrea, you know, she blows up in a situation where blowing up isn't terribly well advised. It's, it's, presented as pretty clear that although it's sort of understandable that she would blow up, that wasn't good. You know, we're not meant to think better of her for that. We're meant to think less of her for that. And then she has no idea how to take a safety off a gun, which is, you know, I, I think that you could have implied that they're all still kind of new at this. You could have gotten that across without having heard not how to use a gun. I mean, especially given that They, in a very, and again, this is something else we'll get more into in season two and three, they get, they kind of clumsily set up her as a sharpshooter, like she is in the comics, but they never really get far into doing that before she dies, stupidly. And, you know, if given, you could say it's maybe ironic, you know, oh, she doesn't really know how to use a gun early on, but then later on she becomes super good at guns, but it's, I don't think that's really justified here. She just she just comes across as a dumbass who doesn't know what she's doing. Or at least that's how I'm reading it, and I'm not reading it that way because I want to. I'm reading it that way because I think that's how the story's being told. So, right away you get a sense that Glenn really knows what he's doing, and you get a sense that a lot of the others don't really con- don't don't really seem to be t- as entirely confident in themselves in terms of what they're doing. And Andrea is just kind of a douchebag and i'm really uncomfortable with that andrea's writing i mean all the room, all the women are written pretty inconsistently throughout the first two seasons andrea's writing is inconsistent up until the point at which she dies andrea is one of this show's great missed opportunities uh, it's, the, the failure of Andrea is one of, you know, just to kind of swing around to the thing where I think Beth maybe not, maybe is not dead, uh, and the failure of Andrea and the missed opportunity of Andrea is one of the reasons why I think Beth might not be dead. Just to, again, kind of jump way, way ahead into something we'll talk about more in seasons four and five, assuming I get that far. But yeah, I'm, I'm troubled, I'm troubled by how Andrea, who's, you know, one of two women in the crowd that you know went into Atlanta is I'm troubled by how she's introduced and Jackie's just kind of not really there I mean it's she's there and the thing about her you know having been involved in you know city zoning is kind of a cool little backstory detail but otherwise you really don't get a sense of who she is as a person and that's you know especially given that she's a black woman that's not great it's it's something that I think that I would have tried to do differently. All right, more- more tea. Now continue with the rambling. So, you get a sense of Glenn right away. You get a sense of Andrea right away, for better or for worse. Morales, you know, is- his characterization isn't terribly deep either, but he seems like a kind of a solid, steady guy. And then the- the other character who just comes across as really lovable and awesome is T-Dog. I adore T-Dog. I- every time I rewatch this show, I love T-Dog more. He's so great. And he's done such a disservice by how he dies in season three. But he's, right away, he's just, he's super likable. He seems, you know, he seems, he's not going to put up with Merle's shit, but he seems kind. You know, he seems like he really cares about the other people in the group. And he wants to, you know, keep everybody safe. And he seems sensible. He seems reasonable. And he doesn't seem like he makes stupid decisions. Uh, The decision he makes to leave Merle on the rooftop. You know, I, I, he doesn't like Merle. He has a lot of reasons to you know, be comfortable with leaving Merle up there. But on the other hand, I really feel like he wasn't, you know, I, he was clearly ready to help Merle and, you know, left him at the last minute because he really didn't see any other option. And, you know, fair enough. He lost the key. What was he going to do in in the, you know, if he was going to be able to get out there alive himself? So, you know, I don't, I don't fault him for that decision at all. And I think that it's a cool characterization detail that they make it pretty clear that that's not the decision that he would have preferred to make. So it's his, his introduction, and, you know, and, and especially how quickly and how quickly it's, how, how deeply it's done for how quickly it's done, uh, is, is really cool and really well done. Yeah, I just, yay t Dog. I, I love him to death. And I continue to love him. You know, I remember that as we, you know, go through the rest of the first season and into the second season, I, I continue to adore him. He's just, he's terrific. I, I wish I was writing more of him in The Good Stars because I, eh. And on the one hand, I kind of am not getting much of a chance to because of how that story is structured. But on the other hand, I, I love him and I, I wish I was doing more with him. But yeah, you know, sorry, we're not really here to talk about my fic. Um, Merle. Merle is is the last character who I think, you know, he is kind of a member of the group and kind of not, who's introduced very effectively, very quickly. One of the things about Frank Darabont that is cool, uh, that, that I, I really appreciated the first time I watched the first season, is that, you know, Frank has this kind of stable of actors that he goes back to, and the actor who plays Dale is one of them, and, and Michael Rooker is another one. And I, Michael Rooker's so fucking awesome. I mean, I should, I should, uh, I should say something about Merle at this point, especially given how he's introduced and how his his first scene goes. And I'm, it just it psyched me up even more to meet Daryl, who, as you know, is my fave. I love Merle. Merle is on this show probably by problematic fave. He's not my fave character, but of of all of the problematic characters he's probably my favorite. And if you asked me to explain why, I think I would have a tough time. I would certainly have a t- tough time justifying the degree to which I like him because he's a shitty person. Like I'm I'm not when I say that I like Merle, I'm not like wooing him. I'm not I'm not glossing over the things about him that make him shitty. He is an irredeemably almost. I mean, he you know, again, jumping way ahead in season three, there's kind of a little bit of a redemption arc that I, I have a lot of feelings about that we'll, we'll get to. But he's, he's a shitty person. And if I like him, I can't, you know, I can't pretend that shitty shit <laughs> isn't there. He's fucking racist. I mean, he's really racist. Not, not just kind of, you know, racist and sort of the, well, he doesn't really know any better you know, kind of way that Daryl is when he calls uh, Glenn a Chinaman. This is just, just, you know, it's, 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 it's played for laughs and it's kind of funny, but it's also like, fuck Daryl. You know, but then later on, he cares so much about getting it right that Glenn is Korean and it's the cutest, sweetest thing ever. But he's, you know, Daryl, it doesn't seem like Daryl is viciously racist. You know, it seems like Daryl's just kind of passively racist because he's been around racist people his whole life. Um, he's not like racist in an aggressive attack kind of way, but Merle is, you know, Merle, Merle is fucking awful racist and, you know, throws around the N word and it's just gross. And b- by the way, I'm, I'm, there's, there's something about the way that Frank Darabont writes racism that this is, this is something where I think I'd have to go back through his oeuvre and, and look at it again, but there's there's a kind of a gleefulness in the way that Merle is depicted regarding his racism that makes me uncomfortable given that a white man wrote it. You know, some, sometimes this is, a, this is a weird aside, but sometimes I get the feeling with some white writers who, who write, this is hard to say, who write racism into their stuff that they're doing that because there is something about racism that they find titillating. And they just want to be able to write about it. And they're writing about it in a way that isn't necessarily presenting it in a positive light. But it's like they get kind of a, they get kind of a jolt out of being able to throw the N-word around. And, you know, they're like, oh, it's bad. But at the same time, again, there's, there's this kind of purient quality to it that makes me uncomfortable. And I can't, this might just be me, but I get that feeling a little bit from how Merle is written here. It doesn't diminish my love for Merle, but I think that it's worth pointing out here. But yeah, Merle, Merle is introduced as this awful person, and I love him. I, 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 I don't know if I loved him right off. I think that I, by the time we hit season two in Chupacabra, I'm all in on Merle. I adore the hell out of him. I'm so happy when we see him again for real in season three. But yeah, he's just a shitty person. But they get across his shittiness so fast and so quick and and, and so nimbly if, if that makes any sense and it's especially cool kind of going back and re-watching this and kind of seeing how it sets up uh the introduction of Daryl and how how the rest of the group has you know their relationship with with both of the Dixon brothers but you know especially Daryl kind of in the context of Merle and uh, especially Rick's relationship with Daryl which I have a a tremendous number of feelings about, which we will get. But you right away you have this clash between Rick and Merle in a way that really cool, in in a really cool way, sets up his relationship and his clash with Daryl. And one of the things that it it really kind of makes me wish, and I I think you, I haven't played uh, the game Survival Instinct, you know, the kind of the backstory Daryl game, because uh, I don't want to spend money on it partly because it just sounds like it's a pretty bad game. But one of the things I do know about that game is we do get some backstory, kind of a little bit from the outbreak to how uh, Daryl and Merle sort of ended up hooking up with the Atlanta camp a bit, or at least it, it pushes it in that direction so you kind of see how it happened. I really want to know, kind of more of the history of Daryl and Merle and the Atlanta camp and, and how, how they have the idea to kind of rob the place. And, you know, how, how the, why do these, why does the camp take these people in initially? Because Merle is incredibly unstable, very clearly. Nobody likes him. Why should anybody? He's very, very threatening. Uh, I I can't imagine that this is coming out of nowhere. They, you know, for, for whatever reason, they brought him into Atlanta, but they, they had to have had some sense already that this guy was potentially dangerous. you know, and it, it makes me wonder, you know what did, what do they think of daryl in you know in that context and and how are they relating to both of the brothers together? and how do the brothers feel about the people in the camp? And it's just how well do they even know any of these people it, how How recently did they all hook up? maybe the, i don't I don't know if that gets referenced in you know the subsequent couple of episodes. But there's, there's just so much backstory here that I really wish I knew and that they don't go into, and I get why they don't, because it's not really necessary, but yeah, it's, it's just stuff that I really find myself kind of wondering about. I mean, partly because again, like I, I write Daryl in a lot of my fic and I also love including Merle in a lot of my fic and these are the kinds of things that I think about when I'm, you know, thinking about them as characters and how I write them. Yeah, there's just, there's, there's stuff here that, um, would be interesting to explore that I, I wish we knew more about. All right, more, more tea, and I'll get to what's next. Um, inconsistent world building. This is something that I mentioned, yet another thing that I mentioned last episode, where Morgan's wife appears to remember what doorknobs are for. You know, and she she does seem to attach some significance, some degree of significance to the doorknob and to the door and to what might be behind the door. You know, you just, you just get a sense that there might be some minute vestige of who she was as a person kind of rattling around in what remains of her brain and nothing else is really ever done with that and there's other stuff going on there's other stuff going on with how walkers work in this episode that that just yeah it's just nothing else really kind of happens with it after that it's the it in terms of how walkers work just kind of seems to disappear after this season. A a couple of other people mentioned this to me after I posted the first episode as something that they had also noticed initially that kind of bothered them. Um, Walker's knowing how to use ladders. I mean, again, maybe maybe I misinterpreted that scene or I, I didn't clearly see what was happening um I'm, I'm re-watching uh this via a stream that's not super high quality these are not hd episodes um i don't have netflix anymore so i couldn't go back and rewatch it that way and i don't own the dvds but it it looked to me like the walkers knew how to use a ladder and it, i i don't that that again that implies uh a degree of understanding about how to make use of your environment in a way that approaches kind of tool use level almost which is something that walkers later on in the show cannot do so it, it yeah i just you know it it is inconsistent on this show just how intelligent are these things and how much humanity remains to them and it's just it, it doesn't it doesn't bother me a lot But going back through this season right now with an eye toward it is jumping out at me and it is is bothering me a bit in the sense that I kind of just naturally look for inconsistencies in world building. Like I said before, I don't really know what to make of it. Uh, I don't really have any deeper place I think I can take it. I just wanted to flag it again as something else that I noticed that yeah, that 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 I think kind of vanishes after the first season and I'm not entirely sure why. I I don't at all fault the show for that actually. Something that happens a lot with a show like this I think is that you're kind of you're casting about for world building stuff a bit and you're kind of feeling things out and you don't entirely know yourself as a writer how all of it's working and you try some things and you might discover that they don't work and you just kind of pretend they were never there and this is a very small thing. And I'm, I'm mostly fine with it, but it is something that I'm just, I'm kinda, I am kind of I kind of notice as a, a thing, yeah. Uh, another aspect of, of world building here that's kind of inconsistent, and this is something that I complained about a lot this past season with the whole chemical warfare plot thing that Negan worked out that also kind of didn't really end up going anywhere. Uh, I kind of wonder if we'll see that strategy pop up again, but it, it didn't really, nothing really came of it. And this is something that actually a lot of zombie horror movies where the the conceit is that it's a virus, which is most zombie horror movies now. It not, you know, that wasn't the original kind of George Romero, Night of the Living Dead uh, zombie uh, way things worked. People just kind of came back from the dead and there wasn't really a virus component. But, you know, now that's the standard for zombie films and, and zombie media in general. So the, the the idea of the zombie virus is that it or whatever activates it because, you know, it's it's kind of a retrovirus type thing where everybody has it for whatever reason. And really it's just waiting to be activated. It isn't that it's necessarily spreading from, you know, zombie to human. But we can, I think, understand it as a bloodborne illness because even if all that's happening is something is being passed from Walker to human in a way that activates the virus that already exists, it's still essentially a bloodborne disease. But it is really inconsistent in terms of of vector and transmission and how, you know, in in terms of the epidemiology of this thing. It's not clear how it actually works. So prime example, Uh, when they're covering themselves in walker guts and blood in order to be able to walk through the herd, you know, Rick Rick says they, they they get you know, get dressed in raincoats and, and shit and gloves and everything and Rick says, you know, don't get it on your skin or in your eyes. Fair enough. You know, that makes, that makes a lot of sense. It's one of the reasons why you think you'd want to avoid a scratch from a walker. You know, you, you don't, if you have any breakages in the skin, you don't want to get this stuff into those breakages. Cause that's a, you know, classic way of, of you know, having things like Ebola spread and you definitely don't want to get it into your mucous membranes. So like the worst thing that you can do really to transmit any disease is to get it on your hand and rub it into your eye. You know, it's one of the reasons why when you're out and about, and especially when you're doing things like using public transportation, you really should avoid touching your face. It's a great way to get all kinds of lovely diseases. So that makes sense. That's fine. But as the show progresses and as people have, you know, fights with walkers and they're constantly getting splattered with walker blood and guts and stuff, you know, I have to think that that walker blood is getting in people's eyes. If it's getting on their faces, it's gotta be getting in their eyes. It's gotta be getting in their mouths, in their noses. You know, it, there, have to be, there have to be breakages all over these people's skin. They're, they have to be constantly getting small cuts and, and, you know, scrapes and stuff just as a matter of, of course. It's just how their lives work. So given that, how the fuck are they not all getting infected constantly or having, having the virus that they already have activated constantly? It's a small quibble. But as somebody who was really serious into Ebola in middle school, don't, you know what? Fucking leave me alone. My, I'm a weird, ghoulish person. There there was a time in middle school where I first encountered the hot zone when I kind of got into the idea of killer viruses, whatever. Uh, it, as somebody who was kind of into how the transmission of that kind of virus worked, uh, this is, the, you know, the, I'm watching this and I'm kind of going, wait, Wait, hang on. It's a minor thing, but it is a thing that continually pops out at me whenever it comes up. And and The Walking Dead is not, it does not exist in isolation there. Again, this is something that I've noticed pops up a lot in, in any kind of zombie media that works along the same kind of logic. People getting bitten is a problem. People getting scratched is a problem. By the same token, people are getting zombie blood splattered all over their faces and shit, and they never get they never get infected. One of the, I think, big counter examples to that is, you know, there's a couple of scenes in Twenty Eight Days Later where that's actually a major plot point, and you know, people do end up getting infected that way. But it's not. Uh, much is made of it in this episode, and then it kind of just isn't really a thing after that anymore. And it's, yeah, it's a, it's another, another place where I think they're kind of feeling this out, and they're trying to be consistent about the idea of a bloodborne disease but then they kind of leave it because, because of, of convenience and practical issues, you know? And again, I don't really blame them for that, but it is something that plucks at me a bit, you know? It gnaws at my edges. Okay, the, the final thing that I want to mention, I think, is um, it kind of kind of Rick and Andrea. Now, I, I seem to recall um, Laurie Holden saying not too long after Andrea died that she was... A, she was supposed to survive, you know, through, through the subsequent seasons of the show. You know, she wasn't supposed to die in season three initially. And she was also supposed to end up with Rick eventually. You know, so kind of following the, following the plot of the comics. It's another reason why I kind of think maybe Beth might be an Andrea replacement, which, you know, again, we'll get, we'll get into. But it's, yeah, it's, um, that ended up not happening, of course. But there, the scene with, with Rick and Andrea in the department store... Um, it might be me reading too much into it. I don't know how much of that they had initially planned from the start. Obviously they knew how the, uh, original comics canon was working. And I have to think they were writing the show with that in mind, but I, I don't know, you know, I don't know how much they, how close they planned to stick to the comics when they were first writing the first season. So it might just be me but I kind of feel like there's a little bit of chemistry between Andrea and Rick in that scene. And I'm not seeing it, I've never shipped it in the show, never. I I just never have felt like it worked. Um, Interestingly, I never really felt like Dale and Andrea worked particularly well on the show anyway, and not just because Dale died pretty quick. But I, I kind of feel like, you know, maybe this is... This scene was where they were kind of seeding a little bit of a connection between the two of them. And that's another thing where I don't really have anywhere deeper to take it. I don't think anything really happens with it after this. I don't feel in season two like they're setting anything with Andrea and Rick up. A lot of that is because, I you know, they're focusing on the relationship between Lori and Rick. They're not really, you know, thinking about pairing. They don't. They don't seem to be thinking about pairing Rick with anybody else. But I do feel like, you know, there, there's a there's a little bit of something here that maybe they were just planting so that they could do something with it much later. I don't know. It's an interesting scene. Uh, it's it's interesting because it's it's one of those scenes where they very quickly get across a couple of important characterization things. You know, the relationship between Andrea and her sister, how Andrea feels about her sister, and who her sister is as a person. You know, just in that, in that one, that couple minutes where she's talking about taking the mermaid back for her sister. But also, yeah, I, I, I kind of feel like there's a little bit of a connection thing going on with her and Rick. It's, uh, it's interesting. Just something that I, I noticed this time around that I hadn't really noticed before and, and that I thought was worth flagging. Oh, final thing before I go. Uh, this is kind of a short episode. There's honestly not a tremendous amount for me to say about this episode. There's just, you know, it's it's very straightforward and there's actually not a tremendous amount that's deep that's going on with it. But the helicopter. You know, I'm already I'm already kind of primed to have feelings about helicopters after the helicopter showing up some in this in this past season, season 8. But d- I don't remember right now if anything happens with the helicopter after this. I know that, the, that that a helicopter pops back up in season three, but I don't at this moment. And, and please, guys, nobody tell me on Tumblr or anywhere else. I, I want this to kind of be something that unfolds as I watch. Do not remind me if anything happens with this helicopter. Let me discover it for myself. But at this point, you know, I'm watching the thing with the helicopter and especially how Rick, sees it, which is, you know, he kind of looks up and he notices it as he's on his way to go do something else. And there's kind of this, what the fuck moment? And then he mentions it in passing later, but nothing really happens with it again in that episode. Everybody's just kind of like, what are you talking about? There's no helicopter. And then they just kind of move on. When in fact, this is a remarkable development that's probably worth everybody's very direct and immediate attention because of, of everything that it implies. A safe place to take a, heli- take a helicopter off from, you know, a safe place to keep it, fuel, somebody who knows how to fly it. That Those are all really important implications, really significant implications about what might be going on somewhere else. You know, I, I don't, again, do not tell me, but I don't remember if it's something to do with Fort Benning, or I don't think it is, or, or what. But there is, there is such an interesting callback, potentially, in season eight with the helicopter to this moment in season one. And I honestly, up until I watched this past episode, I had forgotten about the helicopter in season one. Like, it had completely slipped my mind. And there were a number of callbacks this past season to stuff in season one. You know, there was very blatant stuff like Morales popping back up. There was stuff like, you know, the wrestling match between Rick and Daryl, which kind of, you know, is again, a little bit of a callback to season one in some ways, to their clashing, if if nothing else. And and there were a bunch of other callbacks, kind of, you know, to, to seasons past, if not to season one. But I don't think that I had recognized what a hard callback this potentially is the, between the two instances of Rick seeing a helicopter. Yeah, I just, it's it's cool. It's another thing where... I think that I will only know what to make of it as as I go through you know this rewatch and also as we kind of see what happens with it in season nine. But yeah, it's just it's neat. I completely forgot about it. It's super neat. Okay, I think that's actually really all I have. Yeah, um, this is this has been a short enough episode, and I'm kind of into this enough that I think I might actually do one more of these before you know, I would normally do one of these next Monday, but I think I might actually sneak one more in this week. Uh, Just, you know, just depending. Partly, I think that I will have time. I'm currently waiting to hear back about my doctoral dissertation from my committee, so I'm currently taking a break from it. I'm not working on it at the moment, which frees up some space. Um, But also, I, you know, kind of want to get to Daryl, because yeah, because he's great. So maybe look for one more of these on Thursday. Uh, We'll kind of see what happens with that. All right, my, my cat wants attention, so I'm, I'm gonna go. Thanks again for listening. I hope you're enjoying this. I know it's kind of rambly, but that's kind of why I'm calling it what I'm calling it. And I'm looking forward to continuing on with it. So I'll speak to you soon. Bye.